Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Welcome to the Emerald podcast series. In this series, we speak to experts from around the globe using research to create real impact. In each episode, we explore the role of research within the context of the environmental, economic, social and political challenges facing our society and look at the ways in which research, policy and practice interact to affect communities around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Daniel Ridge. I'm Helen Bedo, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. This week, I'm speaking to Dr. Paul Ian Campbell, lecturer in sociology at the University of Leicester. Paul's research focuses on race, community and identity in local and professional football. His first book, Football, Ethnicity and Community, won the British Sociological Association's Philip Abrams Prize in 2017. We are here to discuss his recent research on the experiences of retiring from professional football and how this experience plays out in different ways for black players. This has been published earlier this year in his new book, Education, Retirement and Career Transitions for Black Ex-Professional Footballers, From Being Idolised to Stacking Shelves. So hello, Paul. Thank you for speaking to us today and welcome to the Emerald Podcast. Hi, Helen, and thanks for inviting me. So tell us a bit more about the premise of your book. How did you get the idea and why have you framed it in this way? Growing up, I played a lot of sport and a lot of my friends had gone on to have careers in in the professional game. Around about 10 years ago, a lot of them started to come to the end of their careers and were really facing a number of issues in in what happens next and and how do they move from being footballers into kind of mainstream careers. I was getting a number of phone calls from friends who were asking me advice and really kind of looking for some help on how to move forward. And this became more and more, just just kept happening more and more. And, And these were very different men, but we're all kind of displaying very similar issues and problems and concerns, having issues around sort of how do they go about doing interviews? How do they even try and find a job and what kinds of jobs can they go into? And that kind of really was the first moment that I realized that there was something happening here, that this wasn't just kind of individual, this was something that were happening to a lot of different people whose only similarity was that they had had a career in football. And so really that kind of thinking about where they were now and trying to kind of map how they got to this point. So looking at, well, the issues that they had around qualifications or lack of qualifications, why they hadn't upskilled during their careers, and then the issues that they were facing post-career really kind of is set up the premise of the book, which looks at their experiences as schoolboys, their experiences as professionals, and their experiences in retirement. Once I'd got this idea, you start to do the kind of reading around the the, the literature and, and trying to find out what had been written and, and where your research might sit. And in that reading, what came out, what was striking, was that most of the research that had been done had really been done through a psychological lens. Now, psychology is really helpful, but it also has some problems. So one of the problems is that it kind of individualizes the problem. It kind of localizes it to something that 
an issue that that the individual has, i.e. they have a particularly overinflated athletic identity or they have an addictive personality. This kind of didn't fit with the narratives that the, the people that I'd spoken to. So really what, what I wanted to do was look at the ways in which being a footballer, being immersed within that culture from a, a young adolescent through to adult life, how would being in that industry, in that culture, in those routines, how had that contributed to the fact and, and, and in producing a workforce that typically struggled to move in, into other careers once this, this their first sporting career had ended? As your book points out, over 30% of professional footballers are black, but at the coaching and senior manager level, this figure is only about 1%. And, you know, doing the maths and putting that into actual numbers, this means that there are around 1,200 professional football players in England in the game at the moment, and only around 23 black coaches and senior managers. So, you know, that gap is really stark. Raheem Sterling touched on this recently, pointing to to Sol Campbell's management career as an example and underscoring the role that having the right network plays in establishing a management career. So what did your research find about, about the role of social networks and how these contribute to this underrepresentation we see at the management level? In terms of players and the opportunities that they got for going into management, social net- networks were, were arguably the most determining factor in, in, in these opportunities. What, what we kind of mean by social networks is generally the kind of friendships and the connections they establish whilst playing with other players and other coaches as such. And as I say, these are significant for getting into coaching work. And so it plays out in a number of ways. So one of the first benefits that, that being in the right network enables people to, to have access to is that they get advanced warnings of jobs within that network. People will tell them, and this might happen even before the current manager has lost his job. So they get advanced warnings and and can start to kind of uh, contact the right people or make their case. In addition, these networks will can vouch for their candidacy. So being in the right network, you might know somebody who's a good friend of a chairman and they can sort of convince the chairman to take a chance on on this person, or they can even just introduce them to various important people, various agents, various uh, executives, or various coaches prepped and and pre-warned for these posts. And we saw this, there was an interview, for example, not long ago with Harry Redknapp talking about how he had assisted in helping Frank Lampard get an interview for the Derby job. Redknapp details how he was good friends with the Derby chairman and that through the kind of trust that he'd had and built up, that the chairman took Harry Redknapp at his word and decided to give Frank an interview where he hadn't originally planned to. And then once Frank had the interview, he had, he sort of convinced the manager, the chairman that he was the, the person for the job. But what we also found was that these these networks were were racialized, and, and what we mean by this is that the friendship groups that players built generally 
consisted of people from different backgrounds. But the close networks, these more intimate social networks, tended to be forged around markers of race. Because a lot of black managers, or there's a shortage of black managers, that actually these black social networks aren't very advantageous for, for, for work opportunities. The third component to social networks was that we found that the social networks that tended to include managers or coaches within them, in effect, players that, that befriended managers and coaches, those were the most advantageous types of networks for, for job opportunities. Players who befriend the manager will work particularly hard at trying to curry favours. So they'll get in early and, and maybe sit in the manager's office talking tactics or they'll be on the manager's table during travel to away games or on the manager's table um, at quiz nights. But what was really interesting here is that the players described that often this meant uh, behaving in certain pastimes or activities which they weren't comfortable doing as black players. These managers' networks were also often whitened. They also, within these networks, they would often have to put up with things like racialized humor. So what we see then is the ways in which networks work are really in, in, in three ways. They're, they're important for, for providing pre-warning for jobs and having people vouch for you. They were also often around markers of race, and they also required players, especially black players, if they wanted to access these more advantageous networks, to have to put up with activities or humour or cultural practices that were uncomfortable to them as black players. So what these things did as they came together to mean that the kind of networks that the black players established whilst they were playing weren't as useful as those which their white peers often had access to. The role of the coaches and managers seems really key. I mean, what struck me reading your book was there seemed to be some really harsh, quite harsh approaches to managing young people. What was the thinking behind this approach, you know, in the 80s and 90s? And, 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 and what part does that play? What we found was this was especially prevalent in the um, participants' experiences as schoolboy footballers. And so what we found was that while the, the level of governance, football during the 80s and 90s and currently were very pro-education, the culture within the, tra- within the training ground was very anti-education. It was very working class and it was very masculine and it placed kind of education as deviant. Importantly, within this, to progress from being a schoolboy player to a youth team player and then a youth team player into a professional, one of the key qualities that that the coaches looked for in a player was their willingness to sacrifice all other activities for football. And this was one of the most key dimensions. And, And typically this meant sacrificing going out with your friends, sacrificing girlfriends. Girlfriends were especially seen as problematic. The, the, the players needed a kind of laser-eyed focus on being a, uh, becoming a professional. And within this, 
um, within the things that they were expected to sacrifice. Education was also seen as one of of, of numerous things which uh, players had to forego or or that football should prioritise. I guess that leaves players particularly ill-equipped to career transition after um, football if, if education is such a seen as such a, a deviant thing and you know your book also talks about how stereotypes around around race and black people show up in in the education system itself this idea of of black people as naturally athletic and suited to physical pursuits you know did you see that come out in the participants uh, interviews so really what we what we see is this is kind of two processes working especially during the, the kind of phase where they were school children. So the first phase, which alluded to in the previous question, was that these kinds of anti-education uh, attitudes that were prevalent within the professional game were impacting on the young uh, school children's choices before they'd even got into the game. So it meant that, that they were prioritising sport over education at a crucial stage in their educational development. The second phase of this was that as working class boys, typically they didn't enjoy school. It wasn't something that was a priority in their kind of ideas of how they saw their their own identities and their own masculinity. But this was accentuated because not only were these working class, but they were also working class black young men. And so in school, what happened meant that they were often faced with an education system that was hostile to their racial identities. They received very little positive affirmation from their teachers. They were often uh, singled out and treated extremely harshly, despite often being very bright. So they would often, teachers would often have kind of stereotypical ideas about black uh, young black men as needing a particularly firm hand, as needing particularly harsh discipline to manage them. So that meant that their their entire kind of school careers, they were they were experiencing a racial inequality and his and hostility. Moreover, they were seldom directed to academic pursuits. Um, because a lot of the perception of young black youth was that they were more suited to sport or to manual labour. So teachers, they found, would often celebrate or direct them to sort of PE or athletics or to football uh, or to kind of manual apprenticeships and seldom would recognise their or, 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 or maybe pay the same amount of attention to their academic pursuits. So as I say, this combination of really a kind of harsh experience um, in school directed at their kind of racialized identities combined with be spending a lot of time in a, in a footballing world which placed a low capital on education but gave them more positive affirmation for their sporting attributes sort of came together to really kind of shape these young men's ideas of uh, education having very little value or being something that was naturally welcoming and football being where all their energies should lie. I guess this all combines to be a bit of a perfect storm really at, at the stage where 
professional footballers uh, are retiring and looking at looking at the next thing they're going to do. What did the participants in your study find? How were their experiences of, of retirement? All of them described retirement as the hardest part, the hardest thing that they had ever gone through. And there, there was a whole sort of series of a whole combination of things happening. They were, they were mourning the loss of their athletic identities. They were struggling financially. A lot of their friendship circles were built around being a professional footballer. So they found themselves isolated. And then they also had the challenges of moving from usually being the main breadwinner in the family and being able to provide a certain lifestyle for their partners and for their children to be in a situation where they, they could no longer fulfill that role to the same way. So this was impacting on their financial clout, on their uh, identities, and on and for some of them, even their kind of purpose for being. So this was a, a really traumatic uh, episode and then this was complicated by them having to very quickly find alternative work in completely alien careers and and often with very few kind of skills to take into that workforce I mean you've also mentioned previously this kind of masculine environment in professional football and this must have really affected you know their masculine identities yeah, for sure. And and one of the, the testimonies from a, one of the participants speaks of how he felt he felt like he was failing as a father and, and as a man. And so this is a really crucial juncture. This is also combined to wider uh, a wider sort of period where men generally um, have high levels of, sort of emotional and psychological trauma higher rates of um, suicide. So this is a particularly sense. So between kind of 35 to 45 is a particularly crucial and sensitive juncture in the male experience in the UK, combined with the fact that black men have higher rates of suicide and also that over the last, uh, since 2007, I think over the last sort of 13 years, that nearly one in 10 ex-professional uh, footballers commit suicide or it accounts for one in 10 of the deaths of footballers. We see that this is a really kind of crucial moment just being a kind of man in the UK and being a black man in the UK and being a, a sports person in, in the UK. So this comes together to, to create a really kind of precarious time and, and period which which is is extremely traumatic and and potentially quite scary for for these men. How did the participants feel about taking part in the study? I mean, did did it change anything for them? Interestingly, the whole experience for them and also for me as as the researcher was an extremely kind of emotional experience. Professional football is characterized by certainly they like to see themselves as men's men. These are the apex of desirability, of masculinity, of financial clout. These are the men that men want to be. 
um, couched within this kind of culture is, is a certain stoicism whereby emotional and mental ill health are, are rather taboo. Put simply, you don't do emotional talk in professional football. So for, for a number of these participants who, some of which I had known for, for three, four decades, certainly um, this was the first time that we had spoken about these kinds of things. But more importantly, it was the first time that they had spoken openly about these kinds of emotional trauma. So for them, for some, this was, this was kind of a form of therapy. But importantly, it was also something on which they'd never shared with, with anybody. So, so what was really quite intimate is these were things which some players had, had admitted that they'd never even shared with their wives or their partners. So this was a really kind of powerful and important tool and, and, and something which really they all felt they needed to do but hadn't felt that they could. So this was something that was really quite, quite kind of emotional for, for all involved. Did any of the participants ever go and seek mental health support at any stage? None had admitted that they had. And in fact, to the contrary, most had said that this was the first time that they they had spoken about their feelings so openly and, and candidly. And there, there were often tears on, on both parts. You know, this was really kind of the first time that they... And, and we had engaged in any kind of intimate talk. Did it change how, how you felt about your football career and experiences? Yeah, so it, it was interesting. I, I thought much about this doing whilst doing the, the, the project and, and certainly afterwards. And it, it, was, it was quite an emotionally traumatic experience for myself because... A lot of the things that had happened, and, and I didn't play anywhere near as long as, as, as my participants. I was released as a teenager. But in, even in that, I'd repressed a lot of the kind of emotional trauma that had, had happened and to the point where thinking through my own experiences and where my own autoethnography could contribute to the book meant that I had to think think about, for example, the day that I was released. And oddly, I couldn't remember. I could remember everything leading up to it, but I couldn't remember the conversation. I remember the office and I remember who the managers and, and kind of being told, but I couldn't actually remember the conversation and I couldn't really remember the drive home. It it, it had clearly been something that, that that had been quite traumatic and something which I hadn't actually kind of reflected upon. So this kind of really meant that I had to revisit some of some some really quite difficult moments in my own kind of uh, life and experience to that point. And I think that has a really kind of broader point for for academics who are researching areas that are are close to them, in effect, insider researchers, because we often think about how this impacts on the narratives that we produce, the ethical concerns around safeguarding and protecting our participants. But we don't, or the last person we think about is often the kind of longer-term impact on, on, on the actual researchers. And, and I think much more 
consideration needs to be given to that to kind of manage yourself after this. Because I, I, you know, I would, I would say it took me a kind of a good six months to really kind of be comfortable. And, and even reading the book now, there, there are moments where I can relate so much to what they were saying that even now I, I kind of get quite emotional reading some, some extracts and, and some of the excerpts. Did the, the participants working through that transition and that same kind of experience, you know, how long did it take? How long did it take them to, to, to process that and to settle, settle into new careers and new directions? It varied. What we found, this wasn't a, a transition that happened overnight. What players would often do is they would initially, when they came out of football, they would gravitate to playing semi-professional football, which is, which is playing for a host of clubs below the professional level where you train a couple of evenings and, and play on a Saturday. And so that would not only give them a source of income, but it would also be a substitute while they weren't professional footballers in the towns in which those clubs are couched. They still have a similar experience in that they might still be signing autographs, they'll still have adulation, and they'll still be surrounded by players and within a culture which is similar to what they've come out from. However, these are often kind of short-lived, usually because after 10, 15 years within playing football, there's a, a level of body deterioration, which means that they might be able to play this kind of semi-professional football for a, a couple of years. And then they move into jobs which are a natural fit, i.e. things like being uh, personal training. But again, either body deterioration and injuries mean they can't do that for too long or the money that they earn from doing something like personal training is so far away from what they would earn as professional footballers that they gravitate to usually manual-based or sales-based, but um, sort of more mainstream careers. But that adjustment then requires them having to kind of learn to adjust to work in a nine-to-five a nine-to-five workday, which is very different to maybe the two or three hours that they would train as professional footballers. So for, for many of them, this process is still ongoing. Uh, if I had to put a timeline on it, I would say that the transition usually takes somewhere between five to ten, ten years. That is a really long time. It really struck me reading your book that that people enter the professional world of football really young, start playing at a very young age at the schoolboy level, and the structure that that provides to their world. Losing that when they retire, that that structure that they've had in place since such a young age must be a real a real shock to the system, you know. How did that come up in your research? Um, so yeah, so this was part of what we what we might describe as a package of traumas that that players faced. And so, what what we found was is that whilst they were players, they were really kind of cocooned within a um, series of support structures which consisted of their agent which consisted of the their their union 
and play a liaison officer. And what these people and what these um, support mechanisms provide is basically a whole host of provisions, even things such as simple as registering their children at schools or finding a house or contract negotiations or dealing with all, all the kinds of things that might go around moving from one club to another. Um, so these networks meant that all the players had to concentrate on was playing football. But on this, but by the same token, it also meant that they kind of didn't develop any of the independency or, or, or kind of initiative skills that other people develop as they go through from kind of, as you say, from um, childhood through to sort of adulthood. So what this means is when they come out of the game, that they have to not only adjust with all these kinds of impacts on their masculinity, on their identity, but they're having to learn all these skills, things like being able, things like having to work out how do you register as a safe for, for, the, for the doctors or the dentist, or how do you go about finding a new job? So one of the problems that we found was is that their union provided them with lots of uh, support and, and packages that would help them in the post-career period. But because they hadn't had any skills of independency or of locating them, it meant that they were completely unaware of them and they didn't have the skills to locate them. They didn't have the skills to sort of go through what were often counterintuitive websites to be able to find and access these provisions. They'd moved from being in a career where everything was provided for them to overnight being in a situation where they had to seek out and identify all the kinds of things that they needed to satisfy the kinds of issues that they were facing. So, you know, what needs to change? What can people in the professional game do to recognise that the story is different for black players looking at coaching careers and, and coming out into retirement? I think we're still at square one. And, and, and square one is really recognising that people of different uh, racial backgrounds have a very different experience of the game and have a very different experience of opportunities in the post-career. And this might sound quite obvious, but there is still significant debate over whether or not race is even a factor. Um, um, racism is a legitimate explanation for the differences that, that we see in coaching, in opportunities for, for management, mm. in the kinds of post-career challenges that players face. And really, it's only once that is unanimously accepted from the governance to the coaches to the players to all the industries around football, the media, once we kind of accept that racism or, or race is a determining proxy for difference, then we can begin to do something about it. But I'm, I'm not convinced as yet that, that we've even got a uniform we understand that race, for example, football understands that racial hostility is 
is is wrong. There's no there's no debate around that. So, for example, their response to the Black Lives Matter and to George Floyd's tragic murder, but there isn't the consensus of what we might call systemic institutional racism and and the ways in which some people's careers are checked because of their racial identity or or checked because of factors that coalesce around their race identity. I think a lot of what you've spoken about just then seems to exist and is replicated in many professional industries as you know how does your work speak to the kinds of inequalities we see people responding to right now with with Black Lives Matter? So what what we see is that the story for black players in football is different from from their white peers. And this is similar to what's happening in all organisations, all industries, and, and, and in the black experience more broadly. So what we see is, as a general characteristic of the black experience in employment, is that in the contemporary period, black employees can access almost all industries. However, what we see is that even though we see black access, we see almost entire black invisibility when it comes to the level of management. They experience what we might call raced glass ceilings. And and so what we see is what um, Friedman at LSC describes as the difference between getting into a career and getting on in the career. And so what we see is that not only are their uneven levels of access between black people in the UK in employment and their white peers, but this racial inequality is often dismissed. It's overlooked or it's completely rejected. And so this injustice combined with this inability to even recognise this injustice is characteristic of the black experience in wider life, but Importantly, in football, we see this with, as I said previously, about we still have a debate over whether or not race is a factor or a legitimate explanation for inequality. So what we see is life in professional football means is very different for people of colour than it is for their white peers. And it really is this kind of injustice which is characteristic and speaks to the wider inequalities and the kind of wider demands of movements like Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is not solely, or it might have originally been in response to that kind of really tragic overt display of racism, but this is really about A, raising these kinds of wider systemic inequalities and really trying to challenge them. And and so what we see is is that that's particularly why people like Raheem Sterling, that the, the, these causes are, are kind of resonating with with these issues that have been raised by by these players. We've also seen um, black football players express concern about returning to play, and we know that that COVID nineteen has had a massively disproportionate effect on black people. How are black football players potentially being disproportionately affected by COVID nineteen? That's a really interesting question because, again, I think the theme of this conversation is that what what we found is that there are no inherent biological differences or significant biological differences between communities of colour and white communities. What we see is that 
a whole set of experiences around ethnic communities. Some minority ethnic communities mean that they're more more at risk from negative effects of COVID, i.e. being clustered in certain types of work, frontline services, and, and, and so that means that they have a higher exposure to, to COVID or that because they're clustered in maybe challenging socioeconomic conditions, that that, that impacts on health, i.e. higher rates of diabetes, which again make them more prone to experiencing negative or disproportionately negative impacts of COVID than maybe their white peers. So that being said, for black footballers, everything so far suggests that they are not disproportionately impacted by COVID than their white peers. Because as black footballers, they are supremely fit. They have extremely healthy diets. They tend to um, sort of be able to kind of mitigate. In in effect, they are young, they are fit, they are healthy. um, And everything so far suggests that that means that they're not especially at risk from COVID. But what is really important is that while these individuals might not be at risk from COVID, they're directly wired into the communities that are, especially if they're a young professional footballer. So if they're a young professional footballer, they might be living at home or they might sort of, with the loosening of restrictions, they can come more in contact to their families and to people around them who are directly at risk of COVID for the reasons outlined at the start. So to put it in a nutshell, while black footballers might not be necessarily at a higher risk of being adversely impacted by COVID. They don't exist in a social vacuum. They are part of the communities that are. And so we kind of need a broader way of thinking about players. That It's not just the players, it's, it's their contact with the families and contact with the communities that are those that are more directly at risk of, 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 sort of having a much more negative impact of COVID. And that comes right back full circle to your first point about why you framed the the research in this way, about needing to step back and not take this individualized approach, but look at the systems and structures that create the conditions for these disproportionate effects. I think that's a really key thing uh, about your research. So where would you like to go next? You know, what's missing from your research? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think there are the glaring omission from this discussion is the experience of professional women and professional women, particularly black, but professional women and athletes and footballers of colour, looking at, again, their experiences and and the kinds of impacts of, of their kind of transitions into and out of professionalised sport. The other area which I, I would really like to, to kind of find out more about is thinking about footballers. This work, even though it tries not to individualise black footballers, it does individualise black footballers because it just looks at them. And I think this, a more holistic study which looks at the impact of this journey on their family and on their parents, because this whole transition and the whole experience of being an, an athlete is is a shared experience. 
so as school as schoolboys or as schoolgirls, how do the things that we find, how is that experienced by their family? Is it something that's in tension with their family? Were, were their family supportive of their children's decisions to kind of laser focus on football uh, at expense of everything else? Or was this something which, as I say, was, was this an issue of dispute? How does the, the kind of transition and this clear sort of depression that the players go through and this clear sort of psychological trauma because we know that professional footballers, an extremely high percentage, are divorced within the first few years of, of um, retirement from the game. So what we see is that this, this clearly has a, um, a significant impact and, and also for black footballers, because what we found in this study that the footballers are unable to access the provisions provided by their union um, for support or guidance or help into going into uh, alternative careers, they often rely on their family, their close friends and their, their partners and spouses for, for advice. So again, the family system, the family unit becomes really, really um, is a really important part of this story. But it's often, well, as far as I know, currently is one that has remained completely silent and and absent from from the literature on kind of professional sport, race, and career transitions. Like you said, uh, footballers they don't exist in a vacuum. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for for coming on the show today and for a really engaging and eye-opening conversation. No, thank you for having me. If you are interested in learning more about Paul's research, there's a link to Paul's book in the show notes. Next week, my colleague Daniel Ridge will be speaking to Professor Ashraf Salama, Head of the Department of Architecture at Strathclyde, on architecture and urban design in the post-COVID-19 city. Join us then, and thank you for listening.